Ecclesiastes chapter 8, beginning in verse 9, the preacher writes, All this I have seen, and applied my heart to every work that is done under the sun. There is a time in which one man rules over another to his own hurt. Then I saw the wicked buried, who had come and gone from the place of holiness And they were forgotten in the city where they had so done. This also is vanity. Because the sentence against an evil work is not executed speedily. Therefore, the heart of the sons of men is fully set in them to do evil. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and his days are prolonged, yet I surely know that it will be well with those who fear God, who fear before him. But it will not be well with the wicked for Nor will he prolong his days, which are as a shadow, because he does not fear before God. There is a vanity which occurs on earth, that there are just men to whom it happens according to the work of the wicked. Again, there are wicked men to whom it happens according to the work of the righteous. I said that this also is vanity, so I commended enjoyment. Because a man has nothing better under the sun than to eat, drink, and be merry. For this will remain with him in his labor all the days of his life, which God gives him under the sun. When I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that is done on earth, even though one sees no sleep day or night, then I saw all the work of God that a man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. For though a man labors to discover it, yet he will not find it. Moreover, though a wise man attempts to know it, he will not be able to find it. Remember what the book of Ecclesiastes is about. It's about the meaning of life. And in his exploration, the preacher begins to examine the boundaries where human wisdom begins and ends. And so, if we, as human beings, with human reason, try to think through to the very limits of our ability to think through things, we come to a barrier, an impossible barrier. In other words, with human reason alone, we can't understand the meaning and the purpose of life. And so the preacher has concluded in this book that wealth doesn't satisfy in chapter 2. Wealth and pleasure don't ultimately satisfy in verses 1 through 11. Death comes to us all in chapter 2, verses 12 through 23. And then upon further examination, the preacher suggests God has a purpose in what's been called the cycle of life in chapter 3. Wealth and pleasure can glorify God used properly in verses 4, 5, and 6. Wisdom from God is better than a life that's lived foolishly apart from God. We discover in chapter 7, chapter 8, chapter 9, chapter 10. In chapter 8, the preacher examines the benefits of humility and practical wisdom. As a matter of fact, the book of Proverbs warns the reader about having an exaggerated sense of our own intellectual capacities and wisdom. In the book of Proverbs, chapter 3, verse 7, chapter 12, verse 15, chapter 26, verse Five, if you have your Bible, you might just go to your left past the book of Psalms um, a little bit further left to chapter three, verse seven, where it says, do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and depart from evil in uh, chapter 12, verse 15. If you just turn a couple more pages to chapter 12, verse 15, it says. The way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but he who heeds counsel is wise. In chapter 26, verse 5, as you turn even further, it says, Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. The prophet Isaiah warns in Isaiah chapter 5, verse 21, Woe to those... 
who are wise in their own eyes and prudent in their own sight. So the preacher began the chapter with a look at authority and the way to deal with authority, particularly when that authority is doing things that are weird or wicked. Whether we're going to obey or disobey, whether we're going to submit or defy, whether we're going to exercise discernment or the lack thereof. There are other two broad issues that the preacher addresses again at the end of this chapter. Inequity or injustice in verses 10 through 14. And then he begins to look at the broad question of mystery. In the book of Romans, chapter 11, verse 33, Paul says, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and of the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. When Paul writes about the depths of the riches of the wisdom and the knowledge of God, I suspect because elsewhere in the book of Philippians, Ephesians, Colossians, his constant reference is that it is Jesus Christ the Lord who is the depth of wisdom and the depth of knowledge. How unsearchable are his judgment and his ways past finding out. In other words, God acts, performs, does those things. And guess what? He doesn't necessarily invite you into the inner circle of his counsel as he begins to consider all that he has planned and purpose. And you've got to understand something. Paul towered over his peers in intellectual capacity. Paul was brilliant. Paul was educated. Paul was well-traveled. He was no stranger to pain and hardship and trial. But he himself arguably... If not the most intelligent, quite possibly the most intelligent man of his time, doesn't hesitate to tell us that God's ways are unsearchable and past finding out. And so we begin to ask and answer the question, well, how do we deal with a genuine mystery? How do we deal with the questions that keep coming up that defy explanation? And many of you who know me and who know the ministry that I have, I love to answer people's questions. I live to answer people's questions. But the truth is that I don't have the answer to all of life's questions. And clearly... Even on good days and under good circumstances, I understand enough about the Bible that I can point people in the right direction. But there are still questions and answers that remain a mystery. <laughs> Winston Churchill, again, was a great leader and he had a pretty good handle on the nation's that were surrounding Britain in World War II. He would look at Germany. He would look in the African states. He would look to the United States. But whenever he would look at Russia, he would get puzzled and perplexed. He always referred to, to them as a puzzle wrapped up in a riddle, further wrapped up in an enigma. There are mysteries. There are difficulties. There are questions. Life brings Questions. And we hope that death brings answers. But will death bring more questions than answers? The ancients asked questions like, hey, why does the sun seem to go in a circle around the sky? What is it that that causes the waves on the, of the oceans to stop right where the beach begins and ends? What is the answer to some of the questions? What is it about hot, molten um, matter that comes up out of the, the mouth of a volcano? Even today, scientists are in search of the origin of the universe. Why is there something rather than nothing? How do we explain the origin of life? How do we understand the encoding of DNA in our own on, in our own cells. They hope that they're going to come up with answers. And the reason why I think scientists are in search of the origin of the universe and the origin of life and the reality of how the encoding takes place in our own cellular structure is because they're hoping that the answers to these questions are going to bring further answers to the meaning of life. Does my life matter? Does life matter at all? 
People want to know about the meaning of life. They want to know about the explanation of death. People want to know what happens when you die. And I know what some of you are thinking. Well, I guess we're just going to have to die and find out. I'm here to tell you that then it's too late. I suspect that it's going to be much better to find out the answer this side of eternity. And of course, those of you who know Jesus and who are familiar with the New Testament realize that Jesus gives the ultimate answer to the issue of death. Remember, Jesus said, I'm the resurrection and the life. And he that believes in me, even if he were dead, yet shall he live. He links the reality of what happens when you die to what it means to have a right relationship with him. And so the preacher preaching in verse 10 begins with the mystery of injustice, the enigma of injury. In verse 10, look what it says. Then I saw the wicked buried who had come and gone from the place of holiness and they were forgotten in the city where they had so done. This is vanity. And remember, as we've looked at the book of Ecclesiastes, whenever you see the expression, this is vanity, it means empty meaningless, doesn't seem to make sense. The preacher finds himself at a funeral. The place of holiness is almost certainly the temple. If the temple has been built, and I believe that it had by the time that the preacher wrote these words. In other words, the day before his funeral, he was alive. He was walking around like living people do. He went up to the temple. He was a religious observant Jew and he did the things that a religious observant Jew does when they're alive. Almost everyone here, I suspect, has known someone who is alive and then they die. And maybe even right now you're thinking about the day before they died or the couple of days before they died. And and you remember that they were doing things that normal people do. They were walking around. They were talking. They were doing this or they were doing that. And so when he basically says they had come and gone, I suspect it's the Temple Mount. And the mystery that he's talking about is this mystery of the unjust triumph. How is it that a wicked man's deeds are so quickly forgotten in verse 10? The the New Living Translation gives us a little bit more clue concerning what's going on. It reads, I have seen wicked people buried with honor, yet they were the very ones who frequented the temple and are now praised in the same city where they committed their crimes. Do you understand what Solomon is saying? How is it possible for a person to live a wicked life, be praised at his funeral, and everybody forgets what they've done? And I know what some of you are thinking. I've been to a funeral, and I went to grandma or grandpa's funeral, and they did these bad things or those bad things. I went to my uncle or my aunt's funeral, and yes, they did these guilty, these bad, wicked things, but they're dead. I mean, what does it matter? They're dead. They're dead. They're gone. Isn't it better just to forget about what they've done? The Living Bible paraphrase says it this way. I have seen the wicked buried and as their friends returned from the cemetery, having forgotten all the dead man's evil deeds, those men were praised in the very city where they had committed their many crimes. That's odd. I think it captures the sentiment. There's something amazing that happens at a funeral. We begin to see things through a different filter at a funeral. Isn't that right? You begin to put things in a different perspective. Shakespeare, borrowing from Euripides, puts these words in the mouth of the person who's praising Julius Caesar. He says, quote, the evil that men do lives after them. The good is often interred with their bones. Solomon says, no. Just the opposite. The good that human beings do live after them and the evil that they've done is often buried with them. And to make matters worse, people just forget the evil. It bothered Solomon. He calls it madness. We call it mystery. And so he's looking for an explanation. 
In, in verse 11, he says, because the sentence against an evil work is not executed speedily. Therefore, the heart of the sons of men is fully set in them to do evil. In other words, some people seem to think that because God doesn't immediately and dramatically punish sin, that they're safe to do what's wrong. Don't you ever wish that the consequences were immediate and dramatic? Just like when you were a kid and your mom says, touch it and find out what's going to happen. Or your mom said, wait till your father gets home. Or did you have one of those kind of parents who had a belt or a switch or other object in which to to persuade you to do that, which is right and correct? That's the point that he's basically saying. Hey, look. Just because God doesn't immediately and dramatically punish sin, some people think, well, it doesn't really matter. I remember as a kid growing up, there was a film that circulated. Most of you are way too young to remember this. But there was a film called Reaper Madness. And Reaper Madness said, if you smoked marijuana, you would go crazy. That you would experience a psychotic break with reality and you would probably wind up in a mental institution. And some people said, I don't necessarily believe that film. And they did smoke marijuana and they noticed that there wasn't an immediate psychotic break. And we thought, hey, look, I smoked marijuana and I didn't die and I didn't have a psychotic break with reality. And Oh, what they said, it's a gateway drug, and, and I smoked marijuana, and the very next day I was shooting heroin into my veins. It didn't seem to work out that way. We warn individuals, if you sin, there will be consequences, and then we do sin, and we don't experience those, those consequences right away, and we think, well, you know what? Maybe mom and dad weren't right. And so we we seemingly get away with things. We do things and the consequences aren't immediate and dramatic. I heard about a person who took LSD and pitched a perfect game. No kidding. He said, I couldn't see the catcher and I couldn't even see the batter. He said, I just talked to the ball and the ball told me which way to go. See, you're laughing because of the absurdity of such a thing. A person engages in premarital or extramarital sex. Don't do it. You'll be ruined forever. You'll get a venereal disease. You'll acquire AIDS. And it doesn't happen. And you think, wow, it, it didn't happen. What happened here? It doesn't feel like something substantial has happened to me. And we forget that the physical things, the social things, the sinful things, the rebellious things that we do, that it begins to accumulate, if you, if you will. The person gets the idea, hey, things didn't happen the way I thought it was going to happen, so I'll do something worse. Because life doesn't come to a crashing halt. Because they're not immediate consequences. The individual begins to escalate the bad behavior. In his poem, The Present Crisis, James Russell Lowell writes, quote, Truth forever on the scaffold, wrong forever on the throne. No, no, truth isn't supposed to hang and wrong isn't supposed to reign. In other words, you, you, if you grew up in the world in which I grew up in, you were taught crime doesn't pay. Cheaters never prosper. You're not supposed to get away with this. The bad guys are supposed to lose and the good guys are supposed to win. Does it always happen that way? No, it doesn't. And it drove Solomon crazy. People cheat and seem to get away with it. Solomon sees the criminal hanging out with the solid citizen. As if he were one of them. And after a lifetime of crime and graft and corruption, he dies, is buried, and is praised. And they even give him a monument. And so he asks the question that maybe you've asked. Does it pay to be good? Does it pay to be decent? 
does it pay to do what's right when no one else is looking? And in verse 12, look what he says. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and his days are prolonged, yet I surely know that it will be well with those who fear God, who fear before him. In other words, he he understands something. He, He shakes himself out of this illusion and he goes, wait a minute, wait a minute. Sometimes appearances are deceiving. A person can continue in what seems like unrepentant sin, but the man of faith isn't overwhelmed or dismayed by the mere appearance that this sin is going unpunished. The righteous man and the righteous woman, they know differently. The Bible, the Bible, the Bible reminds us that the wicked will certainly be punished and the evil will be in fact judged. After Columbine, I was called out on, a, on another incident that took place right Around the corner at a Subway sandwich shop. Two young students at Columbine High School were quite literally murdered. They were executed. And they never picked up a suspect. They never found a person who did this. No one's ever been charged for the crime. No one has ever served a single day of jail time for two murders. It looks like they got away with it within within a few hours. I remember I was being interviewed on TV and I looked right into the camera and I said, the person who did this will pay. Maybe not here and maybe not now. Here's what I said. Be sure that your sin will find you out. It may look like you're going to get away with it. It could quite possibly happen. Is it possible that a person can go their whole life, commit a crime, never get caught, never get sentenced, never go to jail? But Solomon said, I I knew, I I, I surely know that it will be well with those who fear God. Appearances are, are, are deceiving. The Bible says, the Bible reminds us that it's not true. The wicked will be punished. Those who do evil will be judged. The preacher writes, yet I surely know that it will be well with those who fear God, who fear before him. A.H. Strong in his systematic theology has a poem that he quotes written by By a guy named Brooke, Stopford A. Brooke, he writes, Three men went out one summer night, no care had they or aim, and dined and drank, ere we go home, we'll have, they said, a game. Three girls began that summer night, a life of endless shame, and went through drink, disease, and death, as swift as racing flame, lawless and homeless, foul they died, Rich and loved and praised the men, but when they all shall meet with God and justice speaks, what then? Oh, look at these girls. Their lives were ruined. Oh, look at these guys. They went to the best schools and they played on the best teams and they had the best jobs and they had the greatest life. But there's an accumulation taking place. All that we say, all that we do, Jesus in the New Testament says, there's not anything spoken that won't be shouted from the rooftops. In verse 13, it says, but it will not be well with the wicked, nor will he prolong his days, which are as a shadow, because he does not fear before God. My granny used to say, child, if you come on a possum, it'll pretend to be dead. And if you come upon a hypocrite, he'll pretend to be alive. Not everything that pretends to be dead is. And not everything that pretends to be alive is. A person might pretend to be full of joy and full of gladness and full of hope. But there's an emptiness and a darkness and a wickedness 
That's what he's saying. Clearly, the person who promotes wickedness and continues in sin, it won't go well with them. Paul warns that the person with an evil heart in the book of Romans, in Romans chapter 2, verses 5 and 6, Paul writes, But after your hardness and impenitent heart treasures up to itself wrath against the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to every man according to his Deeds. There is a God. He is fair. And he is just. And he will render to each and every person according to their deeds. In verse 14, it says, there's a vanity which occurs on earth. An emptiness, a meaninglessness, what, seem, what seems like a, an empty, meaningless thing. There is a vanity which occurs on the earth that, are, that there are just men to whom it happens according to the work of the wicked. Again, there are wicked men to whom it happens according to the work of the righteous. I said this is also empty. Now think about what the preacher is saying. He's talking about the mystery of unfair consequences. He's asking the question that's been asked over and over again. Why do good things happen to bad people and bad things happen to good people? Why is it that seems things seem to be switched around? How is it possible that a missionary gets murdered in Africa and a murderer lives in the witness protection program? How do you explain that? How is it possible that the rich get rich by unfair practices, but the person who's honest and moral remains poor even when they exercise honesty and integrity? Is honesty and integrity always rewarded? No. Is deceit and wickedness always discovered? No. Here's what the Living Bible says. It puts verse 14 this way. Providence seems to treat some good people as though they were wicked and some wicked people as though they were good. How is it possible for a pastor on vacation to be killed in a head-on collision and a pimp and a prostitute ride in a limousine unscathed and unharmed? Rabbi Harold Kushner wrote a book that became really famous, entitled When Bad Things Happen to Good People. I certainly don't agree with his conclusions, but his thoughts struck a chord literally with hundreds of thousands of people across our country. He writes, and I'm going to quote at length, quote, there is only one question which really matters. Why do bad things happen to good people? All other theological conversation is intellectually diverting. Virtually every meaningful conversation I have ever had with people on the subject of God and religion has either started with this question or gotten around to it before long. The misfortunes of good people are not only a problem to the people who suffer and to their families, they are a problem to everyone who wants to believe in a just and a fair and a livable world, they inevitably raise questions about the goodness and the kindness, even the existence of God. Does a good God, does a kind God exist? Does he see what's happening, but he just simply doesn't care? Or does he care, but he just simply doesn't have the power to intervene? By the way, that's the conclusion that the rabbi came to. That there is a God. That he sees. That he cares. But in Rabbi Harold Kushner's world, this God who is there and who sees and cares is powerless to do anything about it. No wonder... People read the book. On my radio program, a person called and he said, I, I need an explanation. I need an explanation for the mother who killed her own children. Because they misbehaved. I need to know if this person is 
mentally ill? Is the person demonically possessed? How am I to understand how what seems like normal people can do the most extraordinarily wicked things? How is it possible that someone can play what seems like a cruel practical joke that winds up killing the victim? How is it possible that a girl and a guy get married and as they leave the wedding and they begin to drive down the freeway, A drunk driver crosses over the medium, smashes into the car, and she's sent through the windshield only to die on the very day that she's married. I wish I could say I was making this up, but I'm not. These are all things that have happened. And worse things, probably, that you can think of. The rabbi writes, quote, Does God, quote, temper the wind to the shorn lamb, unquote? Does he never ask more of us than we can endure? My experience, alas, has been otherwise. I have seen people crack under the strain of unbearable tragedy. I have seen marriages break up after the death of a child because... Parents blamed each other for not taking proper care or for carrying the defective gene or simply because the memories they shared were unendurably painful. I have seen people make noble and sensitive through suffering, but I've also seen many more people grow cynical and bitter. I've seen people become jealous of those around them, unable to take part in the routines of normal living. I've seen cancers and automobile accidents take the life of a member of one family and then functionally end the lives of five others who could never again be the normal, cheerful people they were before the disaster struck, unquote. And so the rabbi thinks, I don't know what to think and I don't know what to believe. Is God there? Does God care? Is it possible that he's simply not strong enough or powerful enough to avert the disaster? But this is not what the Bible says. The Bible indicates that God is good and that God has a plan. So we're left with a mystery. Well, why doesn't God do something? And I only have a partial answer. And the partial answer is God has done something. That even though it seems unresolved at this point, and it seems unfair at this point, and it seems inequitous at this point, God does have a plan and he does have a a purpose. And that God has made a mechanism so that sins can be forgiven, so that people can experience peace and joy and hope and a reconciliation with the Father. Why doesn't God reveal his plan and his purpose then? Well, again, the Bible says, in part, he has. What's his plan? To forgive you. What else? To reconcile you. What else? To create a mechanism so that your heart could be filled with hope and in the knowledge that your life matters and it's going somewhere and it's going to end up somewhere. Well, why can't he make me understand? Paul writes, we see through a glass darkly. We peer through a fog. And we see what looks like a light. But we have incomplete understanding. We see what looks like evil having a temporary victory. We see the unfair circumstance. We remember Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 10 earlier. I have seen the task which God has given the sons of men, which to occupy themselves. He has made everything beautiful or appropriate in its time. He has also set eternity in their hearts, yet so that man will not find out the work which God has done from the beginning even to the end. Ecclesiastes 3. There's this sense that there's something more than the temporary and the temporal. That there is something eternal. He's made everything beautiful. And so here is what we begin to understand. If we don't have an eternal perspective, we can easily be crushed. 
We can easily wring our hands and demand that God give us an explanation that makes sense to us. Ruth Harms Calkin wrote, Lord, I'm drowning in a sea of perplexity. Waves of confusion crash over me. I'm too weak to shout for help. Either quiet the waves or lift me above them. It's too late to learn how to swim. You ever felt that way? Lord, I'm drowning. There is a sense in which we're trying to make it make sense. And so Solomon writes in verse 15, he says, So I commended enjoyment because a man has nothing better under the sun than to eat, drink, and be merry, for this will remain with him in his labor all the days of his life, which God gives him under the sun. If you haven't read the entire book, and if you haven't read the beginning of the chapter, you might misunderstand what you just read. Is the preacher saying, hey, look, in the midst of all of this mystery, iniquity, wickedness, and unfair, I said, unfairness, I just said, you know what? I'm just going to eat, drink, and be merry. Hey, since I don't know the answers, I might as well just simply indulge myself in a world where there's unjust triumph, in a world where there is unfair consequences. These seem to be my choices. I'm going to become bitter and cynical and angry. Or I'm going to have some fun. Is that what he's saying? I don't think so. I don't think that the preacher has decided to embrace raw hedonism. That is, of course, if you read carefully and you emphasize the end of the verse, look what it says. For this will remain with him in his labor all the days of his life, which God gives him under the sun. I think a more fair reading is the simplicity and the contentment that comes from life's simple pleasures when your grandma comes to you or your uncle comes to you or some wise person comes to you and says, sweetie, you can't get bitter and angry and cynical. Life goes on. We still have to eat and we still have to drink and we still have to find some sort of satisfying way to experience joy and goodness and hope. So what are our options? Bitterness, cynicism. In verses 12 and 13, the preacher speaks of a different perspective, a willingness to embrace the long view, God's view. Does the Bible teach that God is sovereign? Yes. Does the Bible teach that in spite of inquiry and mystery, there's a God, a sovereign God who's behind the scene, causing all things to work together for good for those who love him, who are the called according to his purpose? Is there a God like that? Yes. If Romans 8.28 is to be believed. Maybe you've been in in a situation with a family member or a friend sharing the gospel and the family member or the friend said something like, you know what? Just stop. I don't see any evidence of God's goodness. I don't see any evidence that the evil are punished and the good are rewarded. And I'm not going to take any chance of giving up my pleasure now and my enjoyment now. I'm going to go for the gusto. I'm going to enjoy life. As far as I know, this is the only life that I have. What will you say to him or her? What response will you give them? Will you tell them the truth? Will you say, 
I don't have all of the answers to life's questions. By the way, when you say that, when you say, I don't know the answer to all of your questions, are you weakening your Christian testimony or biblical faith? Are you suggesting even for a moment that because you don't have all of the answers to all of life's questions, that the answers that you do have are somehow less important or less real? I don't have the answers to all of life's questions, but I do know this, that your life is meaningful and that God is good and that sins can be forgiven and that hell is a real place that has to be avoided at all costs and heaven is a real place. Even a fair-minded scientist, even a fair-minded philosopher, they will tell you that there are mysteries and inquiries and questions that they don't have an answer to. Why is their ignorance somehow more noble than yours? Here's what we know, that God's judgment is tied to God's timing. I don't know the answer to all of life's questions, but I do know this. That there is an answer and the answer will unfold. There will come a time where you will stop seeing darkly, but then you will see clearly face to face. In verse 16, look what it says. When I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that is done on earth, even though one sees no sleep day or night, we might paraphrase this. When I gave my heart to know wisdom and to see the task which was done on the earth, the idea of human beings working, even even though one should never sleep. In other words, he's basically saying, even if I devoted the rest of my life, I never ate, I never drank, I never slept, I never did anything else other than just simply pursue this question. After I saw the work of God, I concluded that man cannot discover the work which has been done under the sun. Do you know what this is, Solomon, the smartest person who's ever lived admission? It's his way of saying, even if I devoted all of my life and all of my energy and all of my vast intellectual capacities to answering life's most important questions, I could never get it done because no one can know everything about everything. Except God and Google. No, I'm just teasing. Google doesn't know everything. But we sometimes feel that way, don't we? Google is everywhere and knows everything. No. As a matter of fact, even though man should seek laboriously, he will not discover. And though the wise man should say, I know, he cannot discover. In other words, there's two kinds of people. Those who say, I know, and they really don't. And the person who says, I don't know. And I don't know when I'll know. In verse 17, it says, Then I saw all the work of God that a man cannot find out, the work that is done under the sun. For though a man labors to discover it, yet he will not find it. Moreover, though a wise man attempts to know it, he will not be able to find it. I want the answers to all of life's mysteries. I want to know if Bigfoot is real. I want to know if, the, if a UFO really crashed in Roswell. Well, prepare to be disappointed. I know you want to know everything about everything. I, I understand more than you can even imagine the need to know. But there are things that God has chosen not to reveal the answer. So how are we to answer questions that seem like mysteries or circumstances that seem to make no sense? We may not be able to solve the mystery or change the circumstance. But there is one thing. Listen carefully. There is one thing that you can do each and every time. 
There's one thing that you can do each and every time. There is something that you have control over in every difficulty, in every circumstance, in every mystery. You can change your perspective. Did you know that? Each and every time you can say, I'm going to try to think about what's happening in terms of what God would have me to do. And you know what I've discovered? That that includes admission that we're fallen and human. I'm a sinner saved by grace. I'm a human being. I may be redeemed. I'm redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. The Bible says that I have the mind of Christ. The Bible says I can do all things through Jesus who strengthens me. But I am a human. And with humanity comes limitations that comes with being human. We're limited by our reason. We're frail in our bodies. There's a border between those things that we have answers to and the place where we have no answer. And I'm becoming more and more comfortable not knowing everything. When I was a little boy, I tried to trick the priest. Well, Father, can God make a rock so big that even he can't lift it? Oh, what a bright and clever boy you are, Gina Tracy. Oh, can God make a rock so big that even he can't lift it? Oh, great question. Trying to stump the priest, are you? Is God so stupid to make a rock that even he can't lift it? Would God do something that's stupid? What do you think the answer to that question is? God won't do something stupid and God can't do anything wicked. And the moment that God chooses to do something, it becomes right in and of itself. We're limited. There's a border between those things that we have answers to and the things that we have no answers to. And the fact that there are limits to reason doesn't mean that our faith and confidence in the answers that have been given to us by the Lord Jesus need to go unheeded. It sounds so simple. For some people, it sounds so trite. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Well, how can you be sure God loves you? Because the Bible says here in his love in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. How could he have started off my existence loving me and then all of a sudden he ceases to love me? We must never give up what we know for what we don't know. We have power to change some things, but not all things. And clearly God has the ability both to control and change all things. And we have the ability to trust his wisdom, to trust his goodness, or to trust his judgment. And by the way, some of you will and some of you won't. You will trust his wisdom and you will trust his goodness and you will trust his judgment or you won't. The other thing, the pastor doesn't always have the answer. I happen to know I'm the pastor. We are human. And I may never know on the earth the answer to some of the questions. Andre Crouch used to sing a song. I've had many tears and sorrow. I've had questions for tomorrow. There have been times I didn't know right from wrong, but in every situation, God gave blessed consolation that my trials come to only make me strong. I've been to lots of places and I've seen a lot of faces. There have been times I felt so all alone, but in my lonely hours, yes, those precious lonely hours, Jesus let me know that I was his own. I thank God for the mountains and I thank him for the valleys. I thank him for the storms he brought me through. For if I'd never had a problem, I wouldn't know that he could solve them. I'd never know what faith in God could do. Through it all. Through it all. 
Oh, I've learned to trust in Jesus. I've learned to trust in God. Through it all. Through it all. I've learned to depend upon His Word. Have you learned that? Have you learned to trust Him? Have you learned to depend upon Him? Have you learned that it's okay to ask the question? And it's okay not to know the answer. And it's okay not to be angry and upset when other people don't know the answer. Through it all. Through it all. Have you learned to trust in Jesus? You know, there are mysteries. Why do bad things happen to good people? Why do unfair circumstances seem to exist? Why do the wicked seem to get away with their wickedness? But few people want to explore perhaps the greatest mystery of all. How is it? And why is it? That God could find the time to love you and to forgive you and to reconcile you and to cleanse you and to give you peace. How is it possible that God can take the sum and the substance of your wickedness and place it on the person of Jesus that God himself could be satisfied in the sacrifice of Jesus on a cross? And that that sacrifice forgives you and reconciles you and gives you a promised place in heaven forever. Now that's a mystery. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we know that we don't want to be trite or trivialize deep pain and deep sorrow. And Lord, we don't want to make light of the real tragedy and the real horror that people have faced in life. But Lord, we thank you and we praise you and we glorify you. We know, Lord, that there's not a single wicked thing that won't go unpunished and there's not a single good thing that won't go unrewarded. And that, Lord, even though we don't always see the future, or understand the present, that, Lord, we know that you are in charge and in control. And that sometimes the only hand we have to hold on to is the one with the hole in it. And we cling to you. And we come to you. And Heavenly Father, again, I pray for that person. I pray for that man. I pray for that woman who have been going through a dark valley. Who have perhaps been in a storm. And who seem to have an unending set of problems. Lord, I pray that you would walk with them. And minister to them. And love them. And be with them, Lord. In Jesus' name.